Well, Meadowland, we have been on a journey uh, this season. Pretty much ever since Christmas, uh, we've been on this journey together. Uh, you may say, well, what, what journey has that been? I didn't realize I was on one. Uh, but as we look at the different things we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, we just came out of a series called Engaging Jesus, a journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that we really stress as we walk through this series uh, was Jesus, this is one of his uh, longest recorded sermons and, and some of the things that he talked about. And he's up on a mountainside and he really creates this natural amphitheater. And one of the things that we focused on, that we emphasized, was the people were there to hear what he had to say, not necessarily because they primarily want to know how should we go and live our life. I think sometimes when we're, we're, we come to a sermon or, or uh, a gathering like this, we want to say, okay, well, what does God's word say about this? What does God's word say about how we should go and live our life? The, the, I believe what we see in the text is primarily they were there first and foremost because of what they'd heard about Jesus. He was healing people. He was forgiving people. He was, he was casting out demons. He was doing all these amazing things. And they said, hey, I, I want to get to know that guy more. I, I want to see what he's about. And, and, and their interest began with the person of Jesus. And we we're talking about how, as a church, that's where we want to be. We want to be where we are, are people who follow after God, uh, not simply looking for what are the to-dos, what, what, what are the things I should do in my life or how I should live in this world that God has made, but first and foremost saying, hey, I want to know the heart of God more. I, I want to know more about who Jesus is, his son. And, and we want to engage with the, the person of Jesus. And then from there, from that relationship, we can come to a, an understanding about what life looks like as we live together. In, in that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would correct their understanding of the Old Testament law, the law that they would have had, is it, what they've been using at that time for how to live. And, and he corrected us, say, let me share the heart of God with you. And so we, we went through this multi-month journey of seeking the heart of God. And this led us all the way up to our Easter celebration that we had last week. We had an amazing Easter week from uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And one of the things that we talked about was, why are we celebrating Easter? What is it all about? And what happens at the cross with Good Friday? We talked about how the cost of redemption was paid, at, the cost of redemption was paid at the cross of Jesus. Talk about how uh, because of our actions, the ways that we've gone against uh, the will of God, whether small ways or large ways, because of that, that separates us from God. Therefore, we're, we're a, a people in need of saving. Scripture calls that sin. We've fallen from what God will call us to. And, and we can't fix that on our own. We can't make a way to God on our own because we've already missed the mark. It's kind of like if you mar a picture and you say, well, I'm going to fix it by making more marks on it. Well, there's nothing we can do. You can't remove that stain or that mark. And that's where God sends Jesus. So that his death on the cross would be a payment for those sins. We would cover the cost necessary to remove those stains and start anew. And so that's what we celebrate on Easter. And that's what we receive, and many of us have already taken that step in our life and received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and that's what we talk about every week here, about maybe this is your time, if you haven't received him as your Lord and Savior yet, to say, you know what, Jesus, I believe you are God, I believe you died on the cross for my sin, and I trust in you as my Lord and Savior, which means I'm putting you in a position of being the leader of my life and the forgiver of my sins. Easter was a celebration of that. So we went from this journey of seeking the heart of God to seeing that redemption is found in Jesus. The price we couldn't pay on our own is paid for at the cross. We celebrated that last week. And we're starting a new series today called Redeeming Relationship. 
And really what this series is all about is looking at the relationship we have with Jesus in light of who we are because of that. So as we are seeking the heart of God, as we're seeking the heart of Jesus, because of who we are in light of that, how does that affect our lives? How does that affect specifically our relationships? See, we, we see that we're a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. We, saw, we see this most vividly in the act of baptism. I absolutely love baptism. We, we had seven people get baptized last Easter. We already have some other ones saying, hey, you know, I, I wasn't quite ready on Easter and, and I, I didn't, didn't want to take the plunge, but hey, you know what? I, I need to. And so we're talking about some other people uh, about getting baptized real soon. And so it's this beautiful picture of sharing in the death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus, where we, we die, in essence, figuratively die, go under the water, and we rise again as we share in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, signifying that the, the, the price of, of our sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for at the cross, and that we're a new creation, we're made anew, free from the bondage of sin, and we're now free. And in light of that, being that new creation, we're to live differently because of the work of Jesus. Because we've been redeemed and we trust in Jesus, it calls us to live differently. So as followers of Jesus, we're called to have a change in attitude. We're called to have a change in the way that we think about others, the way we think about the world. I think sometimes this is one of the more, more challenging things when it comes to a new life in Jesus, right? Because sometimes there's ways that we think that we don't even realize are counter to what God would have for us. Well, one example of this is growing up, um, I never realized how much I bought into this, this uh, concept of the American dream. Where, hey, as long as you work hard, you'll grow up and you'll get married and you'll have 2.3 kids and you'll buy a house with a white picket fence and you'll, you'll live the American dream. You'll live success and all those things. And while, yes, God does call us to work hard, does call us to be responsible in the things that we do, this ultimate American dream is a lie. It's not true. I've known too many people who are faithful and work hard, who continue to get beaten down, and continue to experience all kinds of tragedy that keeps them in a challenging place. I know too many stories of people who don't work hard at all but fall into success in the same way you would trip over your kids as you're trying to cook dinner and they're in the kitchen running around. So I began to see, well, hang on a sec. This life isn't about the American dream. It isn't about success in the financial world. But this life is about success in the eyes of God. And I had to kind of, wait a minute, I, I need to think about this differently. Well, what is the success that God calls me to? Well, what is God saying? Here's how you should go and live. So at the end of my days, I can say, yeah, I, I walked in the ways that God called me to. And so as a follower of Jesus, we need to fix our attitude. We need to change the way we think about the world. And this is an ongoing process. One I love about God, it's not like an instant, like, hey, I expect everything in your life that you got backwards, we're going to fix it today, because that would be so overwhelming. We've been walking, for, walking with Jesus for years, and, and I'm still learning new things about new ways to, to change my attitude, change the way I think, the way I think to be in line with, with God's heart. We're called to have renewed actions, how we interact. So our renewed attitude, renewed actions, the way that we act when it comes to to engaging with others and, and living in this world, and even just in our own private time as well. The things that we do should change as a follower of Jesus. What's interesting, sometimes we expect this of people before they come to Jesus. There's someone in your life, and they, they want to ask questions about Jesus, or they want to come to church, and, and, and sometimes we get this backwards. We say, no, you got to fix all these actions in your life first. You, you, you can't have your life be a mess and come to church. That is so wrong. 
That is so backwards. It's just the opposite. Because honestly, we can't fix our life on our own apart from God. So there's some little things we can do. If we, if we want lasting life change that's going to make a difference, we've got to trust in Jesus for that. And so we come to a place of trusting in Jesus, and, and out of that relationship with him, after engaging the heart of God, he does a work inside of us, empowers us with the Holy Spirit, and brings about life change in our actions to where we're doing new things. And we're not doing old things. Also, we're called to a new approach in our, uh, our relationships. So a new attitude, new actions, and a new approach in our relationships. The way that we engage in relationship with each other should change. It should be affected by the fact that we know Jesus, that we trust in him as our Lord and Savior, that we are a new creation. So for those of us here who don't follow Jesus, if you're just not at that point yet, you're still you know, unsure that there's, there's something that you've got a big question about, and, and until you get that question answered, you're not sure if you can take that next step. If that's where you're at, here's my request to you. While you're here, and, and know that you are so welcome here, we're so glad that you're here. This is a safe place uh, to ask questions. It's, it's a safe place to not be ready uh, to receive Jesus yet. We, we love you, and we're going to walk with you as you ask your questions. But one thing I would ask is that, while you're here, would you consider the ways of Jesus? Would you consider the ways of Jesus and, and, and believe for a moment that maybe God does have our best in mind? When we look at how he calls us, that maybe he does want good things for us. I know following God and, and, and living his way is not the easy way, but it is a fruitful way. It's not the easy way, but it is a fruitful way. If you've been wanting more fruit in your life, when I say fruit, I'm talking about just the, 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 the joy uh, of um, seeing relationships that, that produce more joy or bring peace. If those are things that you desire, would you consider what God calls us to, even if you don't trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior yet? Following Jesus is not a life that is free from conflict. If any Christian has ever told you that, they're either lying or they just don't understand what it means to follow Jesus fully. Because following Jesus is not a life free from conflict, but it is a life full of contentment. There's a life full of contentment. As we see that all that we need is satisfied in God. As we see that played out in our life. And so I would ask you if, you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, would you at least consider his ways, ask your questions, and come to know Jesus for who he is. Uh, for the rest of us, for all of us here, um, I believe that Jesus changes everything. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus changes everything. And we're moved to follow him and engage in his, his heart. And so as those who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, the question we're going to ask here this morning is, what should our relationships look like? How should they be different? That's the whole heart of this series. And I, my heart is for these times together to be more, as much of a conversation as possible. And I know from a logistical standpoint, sometimes that, that, that's a challenge. And, and maybe you've, you've heard a preacher do this before, and then all of a sudden he says, okay, turn in a group of five people and ask them, you know, share your deepest, darkest secret with someone you just met. We're not going to do that here this morning. We'll save it for later. Um, just kidding. Um, but what I would ask, is there are ways that we can engage in some of this stuff on, on the road to Sunday mornings? Um, you, you can email questions. Um, you can in, interact with us on social media. Facebook's probably the easiest way to do that. And we're going to be posting questions throughout this series. Uh, we would love to hear, one, uh, what are the relationships that you have questions about? What are the relationships in your life where you, you said, hey, you know what? How, how, do I, how do I engage in this relationship in view of who Jesus is? We've already had some people share some different examples, and we're going to be incorporating those in. Uh, but the other thing we'd ask is, 
within those relationships, what are the challenges, what are the conflicts, what are the questions you have regarding the heart of God? Hey, what, what would God say about this? How, how would a, a follower of Christ interact with, with someone in this kind of a relationship or in this kind of a situation? We would love to hear those questions. And so it's an invitation to engage with us on social media or through email. Uh, and some of what's to come, some of the different weeks that we have come up, this is a series I, I want to kind of bring in some experts. I want to have someone who have a, a new and a fresh perspective on some of these things. And so on uh, May 7th, if you know Joel Honiger, he, he's guest spoke here a few times. Uh, he's going to be speaking on uh, workplace relationships, uh, on relationships in the workplace. And so if we're a follower of Jesus, living a redeemed life because of the work of Jesus, how do, how do we live redeemed relationships in the workplace? That's what we're looking at on the 7th. On the 21st, we have another guest coming in, uh, Mike Siri. Uh, he's uh, uh, doing some ministry in Wakanda. Him and his wife run a, a counseling service and a marriage uh, counseling service. And so he's going to be speaking on specifically the relationship of marriage. And so that's going to be on May 21st, the, the, the last week of this series. Uh, in between there is Mother's Day, May 14th. Um, I'm going to be addressing kind of just some family relationships in general, uh, sibling relationships and those kind of things, both uh, for the young and old. Uh, but then also Mother's Day is just an awesome Sunday. Uh, we bring in MJ's coffee cart. We have free gourmet coffees for all ladies in attendance, uh, regardless of your status as mother. Um, and that's just a gift we just want to give to you. And um, hopefully that's something that can equip you as you invite others to come. Uh, if you have a coffee lover in your life you've been trying to invite out, say, hey, this is the week to say yes. You know, it's free gourmet coffee. First one is, is covered. Second one is on, on me. Not me, me, but me, you, the person who brings them. The other thing that we got going on on Mother's Day is we have a, a professional photographer who's going to be here taking family photos, um, and then they'll have a website set up, so if you want to order those, basically, um, it's one of those Sundays you can bring mom and put on your Sunday best, and then you get a photo taken um, by a professional photographer. That will be that Sunday as well. So a lot of fun stuff coming up. That's kind of where we're going here with this series. But today we're looking specifically about redeeming our relationships with our neighbor, redeeming our relationship with our neighbor. Uh, so if you came this morning with your neighbor, this could be a fun Sunday. <laughs> but how, how are your relationships with your, with your neighbors? I mean, think about both now and in the past, how have your relationships been with your neighbors? I, I was thinking on this for how I answered this question. And as a kid, we grew up in Lake Zurich, and I still remember the, the house that I grew up in and, um, throughout those years. And one of my jobs was, was to go in the backyard and clean up dog poop. Um, confession time. I don't know why I did this. It's just one of those things that goes through a kid's head and, and you just, whatever you do at the time, and you just keep doing it. And so uh, for whatever reason, when I got to the back lot line, which our whole backyard was fenced, um, when I was picking up dog poop, even though I had a bag right next to me, for some reason it was more fun to fling it over the fence. And so I was not the best of neighbor um, in that situation. It may have soured the relationship with my parents and them. I, I, I don't know. I never found out if they found out about my poop-flinging adventures, um, but it just was, was something I did. So maybe you have, maybe you're on the receiving end of that. If that's you, on behalf of whoever did it, accept my apology. I am genuinely sorry that you have to deal with that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know some of our neighbors as I would grow up. We didn't have um, much interaction with our next-door neighbors, uh, but I, I, we had some connections in the neighborhood. And some of my closest friendships growing up and, and just family friends were those who were in our neighborhood, those who lived just down the street or one, one block over, and we had some real positive relationships. I can also remember when my wife and I moved to the first house that we bought together uh, in Lombard, um, we were blessed with just fantastic neighbors. 
Some of the, the best next-door neighbors you could ask for. Um, we, we had a, a young couple to the, the south of us and then another couple to the north of us. And it really built a relationship that went beyond just next-door neighbors to friends and even family in some cases. Uh, with the neighbors to the north, um, oftentimes that they would be, uh, we're, we're helping each other to, to meet each other's needs. There's a power outage, and one uh, our neighbors had a generator, and they let us uh, borrow one of the ports to keep our refrigerator running. Um, there's a, a project I was working on, and if you know me, um, finishing projects is not my strength. Starting them, man, I can rock it, but finishing them isn't always my strength. And, and I built a crib for our, 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 my, our firstborn that was on, on her way, and um, it was basically the week of the due date, and I'm still finishing this crib. And it's finally built, and then it's a week past the due date. We're a week overdue. God was like, hey, Steve, you got to hurry up. I'll hold this back a little bit, but you got to get this done. And, and I, I didn't have it done. And so we went to the hospital, and my next-door neighbor did the, 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 the finishing finish work as far as the staying and all that, and had this thing all set and ready to go for us. And just what an amazing a blessing. That, that's, those are some tangible needs that they met, but there's a real uh, a familiar, uh, sense of family with them. And, and just really loving uh, on our daughter. Uh, we only had the one at that time. It's just with some great pictures of, of, of friends. Kind of that proverbial, hey, can I, can I borrow your tools? You know, and can I, we just do life together. Um, I've also seen some stories of strained, strained neighbor relationships. Uh, at a season where I was a surveyor, and there'd be a few times where we'd call out simply just to locate property corners. That was our whole job uh, on that particular job site, was just to locate property corners. And nine times out of the ten, it was because of neighbor disputes. So-and-so had put his fence here. I mean, oftentimes, you have one of the neighbors was, like, watching for us to come. As soon as we got pulled up, I mean, they were right at the door, tapping on the window, and they we want to know where this property corner is. And then you hear the whole story about this feud back and forth between these neighbors. And sometimes we would locate property corners and actually start a feud where one never was to begin with because they'd all of a sudden see, oh, my fence should be over here and not over there. And, you know, all of a sudden you'd have conflict that would erupt. Um, so those are some of my experiences. What are yours? What's your relationship like when it comes to your neighbor? And when we stop and think about it, some of you maybe say, well, you're talking about my next door neighbor? You're talking about those down the street? Who are you talking about, Steve? And see, that's actually the big question we need to address here this morning before we can talk about our relationship with our neighbors is who are our neighbors? How, how do we define that today? But more importantly, as we look at, at, at Jesus' heart towards our neighbors, what was his understanding? When he talks about neighbor, what... Who is he talking about? This is actually a serious question I had, and it's, it's silly, I know that, but um, the first place I got was a condo. And, and you know, condos, they kind of stack them all in there. And I had a neighbor on either side of me, and I had a neighbor above me. And I was pondering one night, are the people who live kitty corner, they don't, we don't, you know, not next door, not above, are they my neighbor? Are they my next door neighbor? I, I was getting caught up in this, like, physical location. I thought, what about the other condo unit that that we backed up to, well, you never saw those people because the front doors are, are apart from each other. So, well, they don't feel like my neighbors, but then those across the parking lot or par- across the courtyard, they felt like my neighbors. So, I mean, this whole, I got caught up in the sense of, of physical location. So, I mean, who are our neighbors? Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be beginning in verse 25, Luke chapter 10. It will, again, as usual, be on the screen above me. Luke chapter 10, and we're seeking to answer this question this morning. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? That's a big question that we want to answer. And um, then in light of that, once we figure that out, we're going to say, because of who Jesus is and because of the work he's done in my life, how am I called to engage with my neighbor? How can I bring about a, a healthy relationship? How can 
the work of Jesus redeem those relationships with our neighbors. So in the text that we're going to be reading here, Luke chapter 10, what's basically happened is Jesus has just received back his 72 disciples. He'd sent out 72. Some of you are probably saying, I thought there were only 12. There were more than 12. There was 12 that we see uh, most of the story that he sent the majority of his time with, but there were additional disciples. And so in this case, we see there were 72 disciples who were sent out in pairs to go, and they are called to go heal the sick, and to call people to say, repent because the kingdom of God is near. But he sends them out to, to share his message. And so they've just come back, and this is where our story picks up. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, um, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, referring to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now this phrase, lawyer, uh, really, it's, it's to really understand who this is. This is a teacher of the Old Testament law. So the law that uh, would have been primary at that point in time would have been what we now have it as the Old Testament. That, that would have been what the Jews follow. Yes, they were under Roman rule, under Roman law. Uh, but So this Jewish lawyer would have been someone who would have been an expert in the law of Moses. An expert in the law of Moses. And we see his heart. He's not coming to Jesus like all the other people who came to the Sermon on the Mount saying, hey, I want to know what you're about. I want to know your heart. He wants to put him to the test. So many times we see this. Uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, throughout the Gospels, where the Pharisees or some of these uh, religious leaders who opposed Jesus would try to catch him saying something contrary to their law. Because if they could catch him in that, they could say, oh, he's, he's a blasphemer. We shouldn't let, they could try to discredit him. And so that's basically what this lawyer is trying to do. He's trying to catch him in some kind of blasphemy. And so he's trying to test him. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And here's what Jesus says. He responds with a question of his own. Verse 26, he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, this is referring to the lawyer. The lawyer replies, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So the lawyer honestly answers how we'd expect him to. This is someone who is an expert in the Old Testament law. And so he uses the Old Testament law to answer the question. How do you inherit eternal life? Well, you love God and love others. Uh, the, the, the first part, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, uh, that, that's what's referred to as the Shema. It's a passage of Deuteronomy. And Shema basically means listen, because it begins with listen and hear, O Israel. Listen, Israel, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so he begins with that, and then he says, and your neighbor as yourself, which is uh, uh, taken directly out of Leviticus 19.18. And so he's quoting what he knows. And Jesus backs this up and he affirms it. And some of us may just say, hang on a sec. Well, Jesus is affirming that all I got to do is love God and love others and that's enough to get to, get to heaven? But what about this whole salvation thing? And, and what's interesting is really look what's going on here. Jesus is not saying that we can save ourselves, but he's affirming that the law confirms that we can't. When he says, do this and you will live, the do this isn't a one-time action, but a continual keeping of that. And so you got to wonder if maybe this lawyer was like, I've done that. I've loved God, and I've loved others, so I'm good now, right? I can do whatever I want. But it was this ongoing, no, you must continue to love God and love others. So if at any point you have not done that, well, you're kind of out of luck. And so if anything, Jesus isn't affirming any kind of uh, uh, works-based salvation, but he's affirming our need for a Savior. He said, yes, you are right in understanding the law. This is what it says. And you've got to understand that both Jesus and this lawyer would have, would have been on the same page. Hey, 
We can't live up to that. We're going to fall short in some sense. would have been the, 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 the truth that the law conveys. Jesus could follow that. He could live up to that. He could live a perfect life. But he's, a, he's helping this lawyer to see that you can't satisfy the law. Trusting in your own ability has left him coming up short. He's basically calling out this lawyer. Have you loved God and have you loved all others? Have you always done this? <coughs> Luke 10, 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Have you ever played any board games or card games with someone in like the, the five to ten year old range? You ever, you ever done that? What happens when you start to win? Seriously. Now, first of all, let me just say, you got to try to win, all right? Let, let them learn that lesson. Kick their butt, you know, then eventually when they kick your butt, okay, that's awesome, cool. Um, anyway, um, what happens when you start to win? They change the rules, right? They change the rules. No, 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 you can't win. You, you, you're supposed to do it this way. You're supposed to be standing on your head when you do that. You're supposed to be doing this. And they, they begin to change the rules. Then you play along. Well, it's all fun. You can let them win. Uh, just kidding, whatever. Um, th- that's what this lawyer is trying to do. He, Jesus is getting them caught up in this. He's saying, hey, have you really fully loved God and loved others? Well, well, okay, well, well who, who are the others we're talking about? Who, who's my neighbor? I'm almost hoping that if... if we limit this group to a small, defined group of people. Well, okay, maybe I can live up to that. Maybe I can love this small group of people. He's trying to change the rules. Who is my neighbor? See, this Old Testament concept of neighbor would have been those like me. Those like me. Specifically, as we look in the life of the people of God, uh, they would think of a neighbor as someone who has the same cultural background as them. Someone with the same cultural background. From the line of Abraham, Israelites, the people of God, the line of Abraham. They would also think of their neighbor as someone with the same religious beliefs, the same religious background as them. Jews from the line of Judah. And so when they think of neighbor, and so this this lawyer is probably thinking, hey, so as long as I love those who are like me, as long as I love those who have the same cultural background and the same religious beliefs, maybe that's all we're talking about. That's a little bit more manageable. He's trying to change the rules here. And so how does Jesus reply? His response to this, who is my neighbor question, he shares a parable, one that that you've probably heard. If you haven't heard it specifically, you've probably heard it referred to at some point in your life. It's called the Good Samaritan. And it's found here in Luke chapter 10, verse 30 through 32. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. See, that this road to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem to Jericho, was a treacherous one. And honestly, the more we can understand this road, it really kind of gives us some more information about what's going on here. This road from Jerusalem down to Jericho was about 18 miles long, and in those 18 miles went over a half-mile drop in elevation. If you've ever done hiking in the mountains and any kind of elevation change, that's a lot. That's a, that's a big elevation change. That's about six-tenths of a mile of elevation change from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so even though Jericho is to the north, uh, more common, I think some people just hate cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, just tell me left or right. Um, but I think for the most part, we think in cardinal directions nowadays, right? 
And so if you're going to go to Florida, you're going down south. If you're going up to, to Michigan or up to Minnesota, you're going up north. Well, well, Jericho, it was pretty much north of Jerusalem, and yet saying they were going down. Well, that's because they're referring to the elevation. Because it would be such a, a, a steep climb to go down. So this is, this is treacherous, rocky terrain. This was not an e- easy path to go. Robbers were common on top of it. And one of the reasons that robins, robins, that'd be weird, robbers were so common is because of the terrain. That there was easy places to hide. You, you always see in the movies, hey, this looks like a great place for an ambush. I mean, that, it was all throughout the path. There was a great place for an ambush. And so if we try to put ourselves in this setting, I'm not trying to be, be coy or silly about this, but we all know there are, are parts of Chicago you can go where, where the crime rate is very high for one reason or another. And if you were to just go for a stroll down those areas of, of Chicago, the chances of something happen, happening are, are more likely because of the amount of crime going on in those areas. It's sad. It, it, it's a, a sad situation that this road from Jerusalem to, to Jericho. So just that Knowing that that's the road they're on, we know that, that robbers are common. The story makes sense. It checks out. And so you have a priest and you have a Levite who both are coming down from Jerusalem. So chances are that they've finished what their work is, that the priest would have been someone who helped handle the sacrifices that would have been offered at the temple. Uh, Levites are those who care for the temple. So uh, a priest would have been a Levite, but Levites aren't necessarily a priest, kind of one of those situations. And they're coming down, and they see this person. We don't know much about him except for the fact uh, that he was kind of beaten, half dead, stripped, and just left on the side of the road. And, and they see him, and they pass on the other side. And they just keep on going. And it almost gives you the, 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 the mindset that they actually went out of their way to not come across this man. What's so wild is that these would be the ones you'd expect to be the heroes of the story. Here are these religious, spiritual men who very likely have just come from doing things for God from in his house, the temple, and now they're going down to Jericho, and they come across someone in desperate need. Man, these are the ones who are going to save the day, right? But no, we see in this parable, they just go out of their way to avoid him, and they keep on walking. Pick up in Luke, Luke 10, 33 here for the next part of our story. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. That would have been like the you know, first century med kit. It's kind of what's going on there. Uh, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. It would be like two days' wage worth of funds. Took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you, more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, again, to fully understand what Jesus is saying here, we need to know who are the Samaritans. So, so far, you've got a guy who gets robbed on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. That kind of fits uh, the times, and that they expect a story like that. And you have this priest and this Levite, uh, so the, these Jewish religious leaders who are coming down uh, from the temple, and they pass by. And now you get a Samaritan that comes by. Any Jew who'd be writing this story in Jesus' day, the Samaritan would have been the villain. They would have maybe jumped to the conclusion, the Samaritan's probably one of the guys that, that robbed him. He's probably coming back to finish him off. They thought very lowly of the Samaritans. If you're not sure why, if we jump back in their history real quick, you have a time where the, the people of God, the Israelites, uh, basically Assyria comes in and, and, and wins, take, takes them over. 
And as part of that, they exile many of the Israelites. and They send them out to different places, but they also intermingle with them. And so this is specifically about Israel after they've had a civil war. So there's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so this happens to the northern kingdom, and there's this intermingling with the Assyrians. And so you have people now out of that bloodline who have both a Jewish background and a Syrian background. Well, you also have Judah, which is the southern kingdom. At some point, Babylon comes in, and they overcome Judah, and they exile their people, but they don't intermingle. And so you still have this line of the Jews that, that, that never intermingled with, with these other countries that came and took them over. And so as we fast forward to the time of this story, you have people who could trace their lineage back to say, hey, we, we've always been walking with God. And they kind of puffed up their shoulders in light of that. They saw that as a badge of honor. And then, hey, you got those Samaritans over there. No, they're the ones that, that, that intermingle with our um, enemies. And so they despise them. They look down on them. So much so that the Samaritans were setting up their own place to worship. Hey, you got your temple in Jerusalem. We're going to set up our own place. And they set up their own ways of, of, of following God. Because there was such a division between this one group of people, between the Jews and the Samaritans. If you think about you got uh, the Jews would have different people that they would have maybe looked down on a little bit or they wouldn't have seen as the hero of a story. A tax collector would have been one of those. Would have been uh, a Jew who was working for the Romans to, te- to collect taxes and then they could take a little extra and keep that for themselves. And so they saw them as kind of sellouts. Well, they saw Samaritans below tax collectors. Below tax collectors. So many times that we see when Jesus interacts with Samaritans in his time, the disciples were like, hey, let's take the long way around and avoid Samaria altogether. Can we just not go through there? A time where Jesus approaches a Samaritan woman at a well, her response is, why, why are you talking to me? Out, out of shock. One, because of just some of the dynamics between men and women in that culture at that time. Uh, but two, more so because she was a Samaritan. The, 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 a Jewish man would come and speak to her what was so foreign to her because there was such tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. This is not the expected hero of the story, and yet we see he is the one who shows compassion. He's the one who, who is tender to the man's wounds, wraps him up. He's the one who cares for him in his time of need and, and vows to return and pay for any other expenses as he heals. And so Jesus questions the lawyer again here in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. And so here, this lawyer is trying to get Jesus to say something contrary to the law of Moses. And yet, he affirms it and says, hey, but it's going to fall short. You can't do that on your own. And we can stand here and know, okay, we know the rest of the story. We know that we can have salvation in Jesus. But then the lawyer again trying to say, maybe I can figure out a way to make this work. Who's my neighbor? He says, okay, who acted neighborly to this man who was robbed? And he says, it was the one who showed him mercy. Again, potentially that shows even more some of his heart. That he couldn't even say the Samaritan. He couldn't acknowledge who it was. He says, the one who showed mercy is the one who acted neighborly. As we look at these three men, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, I only see one major thing they have in common in this story. It's that they were the, the man's neighbor. Well, Steve, where, where, where do you see that? I think they were the man's neighbor. Because the story's laid out, then the question is, who acted neighborly? Now, they, in that question is, is the implication that, hey, all three of these men are the neighbor to this man. 
And so who acted accordingly? Who acted in light of being that neighbor? Well, it was just the one. And so what made them all a neighbor? Honestly, the only thing they have in common is that is their proximity. It was their proximity. The title of neighbor is given to those in proximity to us in our daily lives. Here they again. The title of neighbor is given to those in proximity to us in our daily lives. So say you travel for work a lot and you find yourself in a different state or a different country for a week or you go on vacation and you come across different people. Are they your neighbor? No, probably not in this situation. You can make the argument, but that's not your daily life. I mean, think about just your daily life, where you live, where you work, where, where, you, where you do your grocery shopping or as, as you engage and do life together, your, your surrounding community, the title of neighbor is given to those in proximity of our daily lives. In the words of the great carpeted teachers of our youth, Big Bird and Company, it's the people that you meet when you're walking down the street. It's the people that you meet each day. I think that, that there's truth in that, right? That, that is who our neighbor is. And the question we need to ask of ourselves here as we take a moment just kind of get a little introspective is how far do we have to travel before we don't see those around us as our neighbor anymore? How far do we have to travel before we don't see those around us as our neighbor? I think for some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, it doesn't take long. I got a neighbor on my right, I got a neighbor on my left, the guys behind me can fend for themselves. Once I get past those two, I'm out of neighbors. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you've lived next to someone who's been there before. How far do you have to travel away from where you live before you don't see the people around you as neighbor anymore? For many, it's anyone beyond our comfort zones beyond our friends, beyond something familiar. So we go into an unknown situation. Oh, no, I, I, they can't, I, I can't see them as my neighbors because I don't have any relationship with them. But we see it's not how much we know. It's not how comfortable we are. It's merely our proximity to our daily lives that makes someone our neighbor. Despite their position, this priest and this Levite completely missed the heart of God. They couldn't be bothered by this unknown victim. And so as we think about those who are in our daily lives, we think about those who we would call our neighbor or those that we should start to call our neighbor, could we respond in the way that the Samaritan did or would we respond in the way the priest and the Levite did when they were in need? I wonder if they thought, well, I've done what God asked of me. I've been at the temple. I've done my job, so I'm good to go now. I put in my Sunday time, so I'm good to go now. I can just go on with my life and as long as I don't look at anybody, as long as I don't make eye contact with those in need, then I don't have to do anything else. I wonder if that went through my The text doesn't say that. But as I'm just trying to get into the head of the, you know, people who, it's a parable, it's a fictitious story that tells a point that teaches something. Because I think we do that sometimes. Hey, you know, I, I've done what I believe God wants me to do. I, I gather together as the church or I'm involved in a small group or a Bible study or I, I serve in some capacity. And, and as soon as we walk away from those events, we kind of go back into a different mindset. Okay, I don't need to do anything else. I, I, I did that thing that God called me to do. But again, we're not here primarily to see how does God want us to live. We're here to learn about the heart of God. And after, we engage, after and as we engage with the heart of God, that then informs how we go and live. So who is my neighbor? It's all the people in my neighborhood. It's all the people in my community. And while our next-door neighbor is maybe our first opportunity at our neighbor relationship, it goes far beyond that. 
And so Jesus also raises a, a huge question. This is our last question here that we're going to address, is what does a neighbor do? So we know who our neighbor is. The question is, what does our neighbor do? First one is this, a neighbor shows mercy and not his back. A neighbor shows mercy and not his back. Verse 37, was, he said, the one who showed him mercy, and the question of who acted neighborly, the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. See, the moment each person sees, a, uh, um, sees someone in need, you can either show your mercy or you can show your back. Your back communicates uh, either my path is greater than your need, where I'm going, what I'm doing is greater than the need that you have, or it's saying I can't be troubled to pause what I'm doing to help you. But really, that's what we communicate when we see someone in need and we keep on walking or we keep on driving or we keep on going. We don't stop and engage them as a neighbor by showing mercy. Mercy offers what has not or cannot be earned. See, we've been shown mercy when God offers us eternal life in Jesus. We didn't earn that. There's nothing we did to deserve that. And yet God offers it to us. That's mercy. We've received such mercy. This man who was robbed and beaten, left for dead, there's nothing he can do to earn any help. Uh, there's nothing he can do to, to help himself. And yet the Samaritan shows him mercy in going to help him. A neighbor shows mercy, not his back to a neighbor. Um, a couple things as, as far as living this kind of life. You, you never know when you're going to be the one in need of mercy. Just simply on a self-preservation mindset, we should be a people of mercy. Before you even get into the, the, the concept of what God calls us to, just in the heart of self-preservation, we should be a people of mercy because there's going to come a time where you need to be shown that mercy, right? Where, where you need someone to help because you, you can't pick yourself up because you've been left for dead, whether physically or figuratively. But we also see that we're called to go and do likewise. There's an obedience piece here that we're called to do. Also, there's a sense in which we've received such great mercy, we should be the ones who are the first to offer it. We've experienced it firsthand. God could have left us in this position uh, that would lead to death. Without, without a solution, without a Savior in Jesus, we would end up in death, separation from God, an end to our life. But he showed us great mercy by giving us a way to life in Jesus. Mercy begins when we place the needs of others before the comfort of ourselves. What would this look like in your life with your neighbors? I, I encourage you to begin this week. Take a moment after service or now in this time. Begin each morning this week. Just asking God to give you fresh eyes to see the people next to you anew and to see them as your neighbor. Begin each morning saying that, saying, God, help me to see who my neighbor is and then to show them mercy where there's need, to show mercy. A neighbor shows mercy, not his back. A neighbor has compassion and not contempt. A neighbor has compassion and not contempt. Verse 33, the latter half, when he saw him, this is when the Samaritan saw this man, it says he had compassion. And we see how that played out as he cared for him and tended to his wounds. Compassion walks with someone as they see value in a neighbor. Contempt walks away from someone as they see no value in them. you got to wonder what the priest and Levite would have thought. Did they just not value that person who's left for dead? Did they not see any reason to go help them? You say, well, how, how do we even have value? How do we know where value comes from? What gives people value is the same thing that we just celebrated last week. It's the work of the cross. It's where our creator says, I love you so much, I value you so much that I sent my son to die for you. And we, we, so many times we, look, we think about that in our own terms, about what it means for us. That's for all people. So when we come across someone in need, Jesus loves them so much that he laid down his life for them so that they could have eternal life with him. 
that puts great value on them because of the price that's been paid. So a neighbor has compassion as we value others and not contempt as we walk away. The question I want to leave with here is, is what do I do if I don't have a heart for my neighbor? So we've identified who is my neighbor. And if we want to live in a different kind of relationship because of Jesus in our life, we'll show mercy, we'll have compassion. But what do I do if I don't have a heart for my neighbors? Or if, what if I, I don't even want to have a heart for my neighbors yet? Steve, you haven't met them yet. They're, they're the poop flingers all grown up. You don't know my neighbors. If your heart's in a place of, of just hardness towards even beginning to consider mercy and compassion, Two things. One, ask God to grow in your heart, to grow in you a heart for them. Begin with the heart of God. God, help me to see your heart for my neighbors. You know mine. You know my frustration. Help me to see your heart of love and compassion for them. Begin there. Begin in, in seeking and engaging the heart of God. And then the next thing I encourage you to do is to show them mercy and compassion whether you want to or not. So you're saying just do it, Steve? Yeah. I think that's what we need to do is just do it. And here's why. Because when we can acknowledge that our heart is hard and it's what's what stopping us from living a certain way, living that way, even the midst of the hardness of heart, is what begins to soften it. Because when we live that way, what we're saying is, God, I'm going to submit to your ways. I'm going to submit to your heart. I know that you're a God that calls me to mercy and compassion, so I'm going to try to live that way because you want me to, even though I may not want to live that way right now. And when we take those steps, being submissive to God like that is like miracle grow on a new plant. It just grows in our lives. And we see such health and growth. The submission of doing the do's that God asks us to do orientates the heart towards the Father. But Steve, all this was all about first going to the heart and then going to the do. You're right. That's our heart. First we go to the heart of God and that brings us to here's how we go and do. But when we live that way and we engage the heart of God and we come to a point where, hang on a sec, God, you said this and I'm not sure I can do that. I'm not sure I want to do that. If we've started there and then go to the do, even if we don't want to, we still engage the heart of God. We've just seen that our heart is hard in that area. And so at that point, when we move to the do as an act of submission to the heart of God, that will soften our hearts. And you'll see such fruit in your life and such life in that relationship as God works in you, as God works through that. We're going to continue this conversation next week. Some of the things we look at as far as this relationship with others in the world. And a general note before we kind of really focus in on some specifics. Let's just sit in that truth. Let's just reflect on who is my neighbor and how has God called me to show them mercy and compassion. Let's pray. Father God, you are a beautiful, amazing, and awesome God. I pray that you would give us fresh eyes as we look at those who we see on a daily basis that maybe we've never truly seen. As we think about those in the places that we shop and in the places that we stop for a, a beverage or a coffee or, or, or lunch, places that we stop for chores and dry cleaning and wherever we go in the community, Father God, as we drop kids off at school or pick them up or take them to practices or um, rehearsals or wherever they go, Father God, let us either acknowledge that some of the things that we have going on in our lives aren't as important as we make them to be, as we think they are. And engaging our neighbors and seeing the need of others is something that you're calling us to do. 
Or maybe help us just to simply pause for a moment and step into a place of discomfort as we go and to seek the needs of, of one in our community, as we seek to live as a neighbor for them, Father God. I pray that you give us fresh eyes for this. I pray that you would soften our heart for this, Father. Where our heart is already soft, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in and through us to show such mercy and compassion this week and the weeks ahead to those that we see on a regular basis, to those that we see in proximity to us. I pray in addition to that, Father God, I pray you'd reveal areas where our heart is still hard, where we're resistant to living your way to doing the things you've called us to do. And I pray that you empower us by your Holy Spirit to go and do anyway. Even if we don't want to, even if the heart's not there, I pray you'd help us to go and do anyway. And in doing so, that you would soften our heart and shape it and mold it to your heart, Father God. And in closing, Father, for those who haven't trusted in you yet, who haven't trusted in Jesus for salvation, I pray that you would work in each one of them as they go and, and again try to have fresh eyes and to see who their neighbor is and to, to live in a way that shows mercy and compassion seeking a fruitful life with contentment I pray they would also find you in that Father you would answer their questions that you would calm their fears that you would move in them to a place where they want to receive you as Lord and Savior simply by praying acknowledging and confess with their mouth that you are God and believe in their heart that there's salvation found at the cross of Jesus. Praise all in your name. Amen.